Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Gail Smith is a warrior against global poverty and disease. For 20 years, she reported from war zones and pockets of despair across Africa, and as a member of President Obama's national security team, which is where I met her, and later as director of the U.S. Agency for International Development, she helped organize America's response to humanitarian crises, including the H1N1 and Ebola pandemics. Today, Gail serves as president and CEO of the One Campaign, the organization founded by Bono of U2 to combat extreme poverty and preventable disease around the world. I sat down with her this week to hear about the remarkable road she's traveled and glean the lessons that are more than relevant as the world struggles with COVID-19 today. Here's our conversation. Gail Smith, great to see you. It's been a long time. I used to see you all the time. Back in the day at the White House, you have a uh, remarkable story, and uh, I want to get to that story. But because of the position that you held within the White House and the work that you do now, it seems like we should start on the subject that's on everybody's mind, which is the virus. First of all, I should ask, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I have a home, I have a job, uh, and fortunately I'm really busy because we're running a big campaign on this pandemic. And tell me about that. Well, so our campaigns, and this will make sense to you, David, think about a political campaign without any politicians, right? So we're running an advocacy campaign. That's, by the way, the way a lot of people would like to think of a political <laughs> campaign. But anyway, go ahead. Well, it's, so it's an advocacy campaign. Uh, the overarching frame is that this is a global pandemic and we need a global response. And what we're seeing all over the world is the same thing we're seeing in the United States, which is that this pandemic strikes the hardest at the people who have the least resources with which to withstand it. So we're focused on Africa, making sure there's a robust response, making sure that vaccines are made available to people all over the world when they become available, because it's not going to work just to vaccinate some of us in select countries, uh, to make sure that we're tackling the economic burden that's being felt in low-income countries just the same and even harder than what we're feeling in the United States or in Europe. And finally, to build on something, David, that we worked on in the White House, which is this notion of global health security. How do we make sure that every country on the planet is able to prevent, detect, and respond to viruses like the coronavirus? so that we don't have to do this again, because I'm pretty sure nobody wants to do a repeat of what we're living through right now. So on that subject, you know, I remember very well the H1N1 flu, which uh, struck in our first few months when uh, President Obama was in the White House. Right. I also know that he personally was very 
concerned about this issue of pandemic. He had uh, worked on that in the Senate. He had read a piece in The New Yorker about the avian flu and how unprepared we were to deal with it. And um, Mm -hmm. I know this was something that was on his mind when he arrived there, and then he was uh, confronted with the H1N1 flu. You ran, and we'll talk about this more, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. One of the things that uh, arose from that, and you were in the National Security Council at the time of the H1N1 flu, but USAID started a program called PREDICT. Right. And that program was, as the name implies, designed to predict pandemics. And it placed scientists in 60 labs around the world, including, by the way, Wuhan, China, and uh, helped advise those countries on how to recognize and deal with pandemic. I think they that through this program, 1,200 viruses were identified 160 novel coronaviruses. This office, uh, this program was shut down last year. Uh, the last scientists went off the uh, and out of the program uh, in September. Might this program have prevented some of what we're seeing now if it had still been in place later in the year? Well, we'll never know that for certain, but programs like PREDICT and what the Centers for Disease Control does, which is post-scientists all over the world to ensure that there's that level of collaboration that allows us to get ahead of these things makes a huge difference because part of what serves us in advance of a pandemic or during a pandemic is that scientists are cooperating, sharing data, sharing the genomic data, sharing everything we've got as quickly as possible. It also provides for training. You know, China's got quite an experience. There have been a number of flus and viruses that have affected that country in Asia. They remember SARS very well. And so working with them to make sure that we're sharing information, that we're providing training where possible, I think is a very important thing, frankly, with any country around the world. Yeah. I mean, it was just striking to me because this was so on point. That lab in Wuhan, that program, PREDICT, worked with them in identifying SARS. And uh, here we are now. The other thing that you were aware of, because you were involved with Ebola in in a big way in 2014, was that there was a directorate established within the National Security Council right. that was designed to be an early warning system on global health threats and pandemics. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What was the concept uh, behind it? And how might that have played into this story had it not been abolished in 2018? Well, look, coming out of the Ebola epidemic, which was 14 months of 24-7 duty, on fighting that epidemic, all the way up to the level of the president who was involved every single day. Looking at that, looking at what happened with H1N1, and remember there was also Zika, there was MERS, there was a constant drumbeat uh, of these potential threats. What we realized is that we had huge capabilities across the US government. Uh, We needed to have a playbook and there needed to be a place in the National Security Council that was the designated hitter to keep an eye out, to map the viral universe, to look for outbreaks, to ensure cooperation, and to make sure that then if we saw a threat, we could act very quickly across the entire federal government. Frankly, I think it would have made a huge difference because I think it would have been a unified voice 
sounding the alarm early on. And it was also designed to be a place, and David, you know how the, the NSC works. It coordinates the agencies of the federal government. So it could have served as the focal point to kick things into action very, very quickly. And it was run by public health experts, also familiar with the, where the various agencies of government could come into play. So they were positioned to be a quarterback on this. You didn't have to reconstruct exactly. such a team. It was it was waiting to be acted. It was built and waiting. Yeah, yeah. And it had a job even during the off days. I mean, if there wasn't a pandemic, part of the purpose there was to move forward this agenda of making sure that countries were building their capacity to prevent, detect, and respond. Because we knew then, and we know now, there are going to be global health threats like the one we're seeing today. So how do we build the architecture we need so that when this happens again, the world is better prepared? You know, your emphasis has always been global. Right. And your message is about our interconnectedness. The reaction to all of this, and and we've seen this building in our politics, has been to be not more connected, but less connected. The word globalism is a controversial word now. And, and, you know, people are saying, why should we have to worry about the rest of the world uh, when we have all these challenges here? And the president hits that theme of President Trump all, all the time, that, you know, we've been taken advantage of. We provide all this money. We don't get enough in exchange for it. And I think you're going to hear more of that now. But in a way, this should serve as an example of how we are interconnected. 100%. And I think there's this notion out there that this notion of interdependence is like a, an opinion or a point of view or a political stance. It's a fact. I mean, if you look at, for example, global supply chains and the entire world scrambling to get enough PPE, we're all very connected. And I think it's important to think like a virus, right? This virus doesn't need a passport. It can go anywhere. It will go anywhere. And the fact of the matter is, I think for many of us, our global role is a matter of values and leadership. And I think we earn and receive a whole lot for that in being regarded as a world leader. But it's also enlightened self-interest. None of us are going to be safe unless all of us are safe. So we have an absolute interest in making sure that this global pandemic warrants a global response and is brought under control globally not just in one country or one state. What You, you talk about uh, the absence of global leadership. What, what does that look like? What does global leadership in a situation like this look like? And that global leadership since World War II has basically come from the United States. So tell me, from your own experience, what does that mean? I think what it looks like, I mean, if you go back to Ebola, and you will remember this, uh, the Security Council was used regularly. It's an instrument that is there. We are a powerful member. It's as good as its members make it. The president hosted a summit during Ebola with the then Secretary General of the United Nations. He sat in the Oval and called almost every leader on the planet to ask them to join in the international response and then to say, "Uh uh-huh, and how many dollars are you going to put on the table and win? And so it's a combination of mobilizing. It's It's using the international architecture we have And it's leveraging the change we need to see in the face of a global threat. I am struck right now by the fact that, you know, as you say, everybody is thinking about this all over the world. And we've not seen that kind of global leadership yet of all the world leaders coming together. We're seeing some of them come together, mind you. There's a very big effort underway right now to mobilize resources for vaccine 
development and deployment. And there are, I think, 50 or 60 leaders, in fact, just today meeting in Europe to mobilize resources for that. The president has made the World Health Organization a target here, accusing them of essentially covering for China at the beginning of the epidemic and, and and suspending funding to the World Health Organization. You've been critical of that. Yeah, look, first and foremost, every time we take our eyes off fighting the virus, it's a distraction that scores a point for the virus. So my main point is that right now we should be focused exclusively on that. And when this is all over, we need to have a global after action to look at the performance of countries, of institutions, WHO included, and look at where we stood up and where we failed and what we need to do better. But the other thing I think to understand about the WHO, it's a technical UN agency. Uh, it kind of, in the way, you know, we used to say you serve at the pleasure of the president. The WHO serves at the pleasure of its members. Uh, it is imperfect, but it's also a really good and really vital organization right now because it's the one that many countries rely on for guidance, for information, and in fact, for support. It's providing assistance to countries all over the world. And to spend time right now uh, debating who said what to who, when, I think is a distraction and it risks undercutting an organization that we vitally need. Let's look at all of that after the fact. But right now we've got, we should have a first priority, which should be ending the pandemic. Do you have a, a, a point of view? Having said what you just said, you may not want to engage in this discussion, but the, the president was not wrong that they, in the initial phases, gave a, more of a benefit to China than perhaps they should. They may have, and I haven't spent a lot of time going through the TikTok of exactly who said what when, but I also recall statements out of the White House that were very positive uh, about China. And the, the fact is, the, the facts are available. They should be looked at. Uh, any UN technical agency also, again, it serves at the pleasure of its members. So some may think the WHO went too far, WHO, any of them have to be a little bit careful because they don't offer commentary and analysis on their members in the way that members themselves might do. Uh, so it's, it's tricky. I just think the timing is absolutely off the mark. We had problems with the WHO during Ebola, and there's been a reform process since 2015 because of that. If we had stopped and said, well, the WHO really made a huge mistake here, which they did in that case, they were very, very late to the game. Uh, I think we would have been severely hindered in our effort to end that epidemic. As you survey the landscape here globally as well as in our own country, what is your great concern and what do you see the arc of this moving forward as someone who's confronted these kind of public health disasters? You know, I think it's unevenness. And I said before, think like a virus, right? Every day the virus is moving faster than we are, it's winning. And right now it's still moving faster if you look globally. Uh, it's still unchecked in the United States. We've seen progress in a lot of places, but not sufficient to say uh, that we're well ahead of the virus itself. And I think the things that hinder us are distractions, uneven information, misinformation and confusion. And again, you hear very little discussion in the United States out of Washington, D.C. about the fact, again, that this is global and that in addition to what we're doing domestically, 
we need to be a player globally or it will be reimported. It is such a tough situation. We were talking beforehand about our relative good fortune to not have to go out and work outside and, and be exposed to make a living. A lot of people do. 26 million or more Americans, 30 million have lost their jobs as a result of this. You know, the impatience that people are feeling is really understandable. And so that tension is going to grow as time goes on. And the irony of this, it seems to me, is that the better you do in trying to control it, the more people get a false sense of security about the fact that it's controlled. When in fact, if we went back to doing exactly what we were doing, uh, we would face the same kind of situation we were looking at six weeks ago. I think that's absolutely right. And there are two things that are really key, I think, in all of this. And that's that people need to be provided with regular scientific information, not opinions, not hopes, not predictions, but scientific information so that people have the facts. And the other thing, and this is under a lot of discussion here, is that a lot of people do need to go back to work. A lot of people are working now because they are essential to keeping things running for the rest of us, we've got to make sure that they are fully protected and they can avail themselves of the testing and everything they need so that they're safe. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. Uh, having teased this, let me talk about your story, all the way back to Bexley, Ohio, which I know mainly uh, not just because I've done some campaigns in the past in Ohio, but I had a colleague at the Chicago Tribune years ago, Bob Green, who was a columnist there, who was a son of Bexley, and I remember him talking about Bexley. Talk to me about growing up at Bexley, because there's nothing that I can see from what I've read about your upbringing that would suggest the life that you've lived. Interesting that you mentioned Bob Green, because Tim Green, his brother, uh, I went to college with. So I know the Greens, uh, and in fact knew Bob's mother. Um, you know, I grew up in a real American dream. I grew up in a small town that was safe, uh, where people had jobs. I grew up in a middle-class family that did better and better over the years. I went to a good school. What did your folks do? My dad was an attorney and my mother worked a lot at home, but then worked out of the house on two things, cooking. She was a spectacular cook uh, and alcoholism treatment. And was there a reason that she was drawn to that? Yes. We had a fair number of alcoholics in the family. So it's something that we grew up with and were familiar with. Uh, it's a painful thing to go through, but in many ways I feel like I fortunately learned a lot from it and I think have become a lot more open to it. And as I'm sure you and your listeners know, there are very few families that don't deal with addiction in some form or another. But it was something very close and dear to her heart. Two of her three children uh, suffered from alcoholism. I see. You, were you, you weren't one of them. I was not one of them, but both yeah. my sister and my brother. Uh yeah, that is that. It is painful. It is so painful, and now it's so more prevalent. We've seen the uh, opioid crisis kind of rip through this country, and 
uh, so addictions of all form have torn at families. That must have been hard for you. Must have been hard for you. No, I got I got off easy. I mean, I I in that I it was not I was not born with the addiction. Uh, I do think it taught me a lot, and as painful as it is, there are few things I've seen that are as heroic as people who really overcome addiction and get sober and fight it every single day. It's an extraordinary demonstration of strength. Uh, and having seen that, knowing it's possible, it's it's inspiring. I mean, the flip side is it's painful and it's horrible and it's a terrible, terrible disease. But the overcoming is something to behold. I don't want to dig too deeply into this, but was there conflict as a result of it in your home? No, no. Um, you know, look, I was really lucky. I've often said, and I still think it's true, I kind of had the best parents anybody could ever hope for. We were a family that expressed our emotions. We talked about things. There were a lot of secrets. It's not to say there was never an argument. Uh, but it was a peaceful, loving family that took care of itself and each other. So I had it about as good as anybody could possibly have it. So you went to the University of Colorado. I did. And you uh, studied English. And then you took off for Europe, I guess, with a guy. I did. And you didn't come back from overseas for like 20 years. <laughs> so what happened? Well, it was right after college. And I had studied English and also mathematics. And frankly, I wasn't all sure what I wanted to do. So I did travel with a guy. Uh the relationship with the guy came to an end, as they do. <laughs> and and I kept going. I was curious. Uh, we'd been in Greece. I had enough money to get to Egypt. I was fascinated by the Middle East. So I went to Egypt and then to Sudan, and that's really where my life changed in a huge way. I mean, here I was. I'd had a good education. I followed what was going on in the world, and I suddenly realized there was a whole lot I didn't have any idea about. And so worked briefly as a researcher for a documentary film company and then became a stringer uh, for the BBC and others because there were these extraordinary stories to tell of things that were happening at that time. You had not done journalism before. I hadn't. I hadn't. And as a stringer, as you know, that's not a full time. You're not like totally blessed. They'll take your stuff or they won't. Yes. Uh, but I learned how to do it and was a stringer for a number of publications and covered mostly wars because, again, there were these wars going on that how did people not know more about what was happening and what was or what is called the Horn of Africa? So I spent a lot of time in war zones covering those wars. And by the way, this freelancing is sort of a an avenue that a lot of great journalists have Taken, including our friend Samantha Power yep. and others. Uh, my friend Anderson Cooper started off in just the same way, basically faking war, uh, faking press credentials so he could go and freelance <laughs> in war zones. But he wasn't a young, Samantha was, he wasn't a young woman from the middle of America, from a middle-class family. Uh, and I'm really intrigued by how you... I mean, that sounds like a scary proposition, frankly, to go to a place that was completely different, where violence was prevalent. I don't know how women generally were were received, but it seems like you were 
in many ways totally alien. And I'm just wondering, where, it takes a lot of nerve, actually, to do what you did. And I'm wondering where you found it. You know, I've had this question a lot. And I think, yes, these were war zones. These were parts of the world I didn't know that were brand new to me. But I also found that uh, if you tried to speak the language, and I speak a few languages very creatively, but you're at least demonstrating that you're trying. Uh, if you are polite and respectful in how you behave and how you present yourself, and if you're curious and people trust that you are asking a question not out of some uh, purient interest, but out of a real interest in wanting to understand, the reception is actually pretty good. And I also covered a couple of wars that were not receiving much coverage, so there was a great desire from various liberation movements that some journalist wanted to go in. Uh, I was curious. It was occasionally dangerous. It was also eye-opening, and it was occasionally hilarious. I want to deal with both dangerous and hilarious. Let's start with dangerous. I mean, were there times, I know that you uh, encamped with guerrilla groups that were on the march. Right. Uh, liberation groups. You witnessed violence and you witnessed famine. And I mean, and were there moments when you said, what the hell am I doing here? Not really. I mean, there were moments where my eyes were opened to what war really is. I mean, to witness something where there's a deliberate bombardment of a market full of thousands of people uh, is to understand that war is a word that's easily used, but a pretty ugly thing to behold. I, I think the thing that struck me the most was during the 84-85 famine. Remember, this was the, in 1984-85, said to be the biggest famine in written history. And it was extraordinary. Thousands and thousands of people starving. And it was also in the middle of a war. And I was covering it from the other side of the lines, if you will, not the side of the lines where most of the aid agencies and the attention was. And Ethiopia. I was in northern Ethiopia and Eritrea during the time. And I think the thing that struck me more than what am I doing here was how could these two realities exist on the same planet? How could there be a reality where I grew up or like the United States or London or somewhere else and a reality where hundreds of thousands of people are literally dropping dead from starvation? It just didn't, it didn't make any sense. It was wrong. And I think that was the predominant sentiment and the thing that kind of fueled me and still does, quite frankly. You know, we, we see breakdowns in the, uh, in the food chain here in the U.S., but everything that happens here is probably magnified elsewhere. How much is the risk of starvation spreading as a result of the virus? It's high. The risk of increased hunger, of increasing poverty, and in some cases of starvation, absolutely exists. And it's a couple of reasons. Um, we're seeing the supply chains breaking down because there's some production in some places, not in others. A lot of people, particularly in the developing world, work in the informal sector. And that sector has kind of frozen as economies have stalled and countries have gone into lockdown. And then many countries, out of a fear uh, about food supplies, are doing things to restrict trade in food, and that actually causes the price to go higher. So it's a it's a traffic jam. It's a 
the international food system is is congested and at some risk. Uh, but yeah, there's a very high risk of increased hunger. You were an award-winning journalist and got a lot of notoriety for the coverage that you gave. But like most reporters, and I speak as one, uh, as a uh, someone who grew up in journalism, there is always this sense of wanting to be more than an observer. Even as you were writing, you started working with NGOs that were working on some of the problems that you were writing about. Right. And what happened there was that I was covering the wars in Ethiopia and Eritrea that were the rural areas of those two areas, and that's where the famine was the most acute. That's also where the least assistance was going because it was there were areas not controlled by a government. And I was asked by some members of the World Council of Churches, because I had been in and out of these areas so often, uh, to travel around Europe and to the U.S. to talk to governments about what I had seen and what we thought was coming. This was even in 83 and 84. And we did that. We raised a bit of money, but eventually they asked if I would work with them because, again, I had been in there quite a lot. And I chose to do it, and I'm really glad that I did. So, yeah, I made the shift from an observer to being part of an international emergency response how did being a journalist help you in terms of being able to deliver relief and deliver solutions? Did it hone your instincts on all of that? Well, I think it did. We also had local partners, so that uh, which is a much better way to do it, actually, than any of us being the deliverers. But I think it. I had a familiarity. I knew people, again, in my very creative uh, use of the local language, I was able to communicate enough that I could bond with people, um, relate to people, ask questions, offer what little I could. Uh, and I was absolutely driven. I mean, I was, I was crazy driven. Because, you know, David, in that, in that famine, close to a million people died that the world could have reached and they didn't reach because of international politics, because they lived behind the lines. And so you just, it's like, it's a bit like Ebola was for 14 months. You just can't stop. You've got to keep going because the stakes are just too high. You lived in Africa primarily during those years? Yeah, for almost 20 years. I lived in Sudan, uh, in Ethiopia, and I traveled all over, but the better part of 20 years. And did you miss the States? Did you... Were there times when you said, you know, I think it's time to go home? Um, yes and no. I missed my family and my friends. I, I didn't miss all the stuff. The stuff. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. I remember I came back briefly for a trip, and I got to a meeting early. And so I was walking around a fairly nice part of Washington, going in and out of shops, and I started wondering, what is the goal here and I realized, and I wrote a piece I never published called Goat Cheese and Failed States, that the goal seemed to be to have whatever you wanted whenever you wanted it. So if you wanted round goat cheese, if you wanted square goat cheese, you wanted goat cheese with peppers, you could get it 24-7. Whereas where I was living at the time, which was in East Africa, the vast majority of people were just trying to make things better. Yeah. And not everybody agreed, don't get me wrong. There were very different views of what better was. But there was a stronger sense of maybe purpose and community 
that I felt. So when I did come back, it was was actually a little bit, actually, it was a bit by chance. You made a transition from working for NGOs uh, to the government. Yeah, in like two days. Yeah, the Clinton administration. Tell me how that happened. It was crazy. I uh, <laughs> After President Clinton was elected, I was contacted by the presidential personnel office, which you're familiar with, and this was just at the very beginning. It was the combination of that office and the transition team. Uh-huh. And they asked whether I'd be interested in working for the administration. And I got a fax. This was in the olden days. Uh, I was in Eritrea, and I thought somebody was goofing with me. I didn't really think it came from the White House, so I didn't respond. Uh, They came back and asked if I would speak to them, so I met with them. They offered me a job, which I actually didn't take. I didn't know in Washington, you're supposed to take these. You're supposed to (laughs) grab them immediately. Uh, And went back to Africa. Long story short, during the Somalia crisis, uh, I had another round of discussions and initially worked for USAID for a couple of years and then ended up in the White House at the National Security Council. I moved back on a Saturday and started on a Monday morning. Talk about change. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, one, one thing I want to ask you about was the transition from being on the outside <laughs> to being on the inside, because it's a it's a different thing. Ooh, it's a really different thing, and the, and the, you know, the... Transition from Addis Ababa to Washington, D.C. Uh, was pretty dramatic also. You know, I think, David, the thing that was great that I hadn't understood, uh, and I really cherish about having served in government twice, if you're an advocate or an activist, you can formulate, you can articulate what the government should do, right? Then you get inside government, you've got big ideas, and the president's got big ideas, and you want to do really big things, and you realize that you actually have to do it. And to do it isn't as simple as just flicking a switch, right? You've got to have the budget. You've got to have the Congress on board. You've got to have all parts of the government lined up. So it's a harder enterprise than it appears from the outside, but an absolutely thrilling one. You were a special assistant to the president, senior director for Africa Affairs. You worked closely with Susan Rice at I the did. time, who was the assistant secretary of state for African Affairs. And there are a couple of controversies that you guys had to confront there. Right. There was the tension between Ethiopia and Eritrea that really erupted, and there were criticisms of you, uh, both of you, for not intervening in a way to try and head off that confrontation. And later, similarly, when Rwanda and Uganda in, in, invaded uh, the Congo, you'd never been in that kind of position before. First of all, you can take a second to speak to the criticism, but you also hadn't been in a position where you were the targets of criticism like this before. And I'm wondering how what that experience was like. Well, it's, I mean, I think in both cases, we were extremely active. I mean, I remember as it became clear that the tension between Eritrea and Ethiopia was rising, we went back and forth between the two countries for months before the conflict actually eroded, and it was literally shuttling back and forth on a constant basis. Uh, When Rwanda and Uganda decided it would be a good idea to have a conflict actually in the Congo, I was the one that negotiated a ceasefire. Now, we get criticism. Um, Occasionally it's hard because you want to explain and say, look, man, I'm doing my best. (laughs) And sometimes your best is good enough, and we all make mistakes, and so I don't I don't mind anybody suggesting that mistakes were made. It's the, 
the insinuation sometimes that it's like a willful or intentional shift. And I think the other thing, and you'll remember this, and it's even more insane now, that was the time when 24-hour news coverage came to the White House, right? So there would be the regular press briefings, but there would be questions about how we were going to deal with a given crisis within three minutes of something happening. And I think that was even harder than the criticism, the expectation that something happens on Tuesday and by Tuesday afternoon, you should have the solution well in hand. Yeah, I think that one of the criticisms was because you had these relationships dating back all these years, that perhaps that influenced your decision-making. Presumably, it's helpful to have relationships, but in volatile regions, it can also be difficult if people believe that you are siding on one side or another of a conflict. Yeah, and look, and people are often going to say that, and and I had a number of contacts in Africa that people wanted to speculate about in all sorts of ways. I would argue it was really, really helpful. Um, I am not a seasoned diplomat. I was able to speak very, very frankly with both leaders. The sanctions on Eritrea was were because, even though that war started for a number of reasons, uh, the initial act was Eritrea crossing what was understood to be a border and taking land by force and refusing uh, to move. And that was supported, and it wasn't just the United States, it was supported by other countries. That was a tough one. I mean, these were two two countries that were governed by men who had fought together literally in the trenches as liberation movements. And yes, I knew them both uh, from the time they were in their 20s. I would argue that that was actually helpful uh, rather than a hindrance. But again, people have all sorts of views. This came up later when you were uh, appointed the administrator of U.S. aid. You had to go through hearings, which are always a delightful experience. Fun. For any nominee. and But it, one of the questions that came up was, does policy favor a stability over democracy? Do you, you know, you have to work with the leaders who are there. Sometimes they're autocrats, but there are people living there who you're trying to help. And how do you strike that balance between promoting stability and aid to people who need it and promoting democracy, which is a fundamental value? It's, it's a tough needle to thread sometimes because, as you rightly point out, there are a lot of countries with whom the United States has a real interest in having a relationship. Uh, and some of those interests may override, say, what my portfolio was. There may be counterterrorism is something that's been very dominant, obviously, during the last 15 years. So how do you thread that needle? And I, you know, I remember in Nigeria when Sani Abacha, who was a dictator, died. And there was a transition and then an election. There was an opportunity to try to work with that military to reform it. And there was a huge debate inside and outside the government about, do you go ahead and try to retrain the army under a new elected government? Or because they're so corrupt from having served this dictator, do you stay 100 miles away from them? You can make, you can make both arguments, that you should stay away from them. Or you can make the argument, no, you actually ought to get in there and try to improve it. So there are tough questions all the time. And it's what I meant about one of the things I actually found invigorating. It's not as easy as yes and no. Often there's no door number three that's no risk, no cost. Uh, it's like, it's really challenging. Especially in a world where nuance is not 
all that welcome these days, right. you know, the way we communicate and the way our politics work. Right. You know, one of the strengths of Obama, I always thought, was he was someone who saw the nuance. But that's frustrating to people as well who, who want black and white answers, clear answers. And you're rarely handed that in government. You always have to make difficult choices. There's also a difference in terms of what you may say privately and what you say publicly. So, you know, you talk about President Obama being very nuanced. There were instances where I think people were critical that he wasn't publicly tougher on a given leader. Having sat in a meeting with him and a given leader, uh, he was quite tough and he was quite frank. But I think often you make a distinction between what you may say in private as a representative of the United States government and what you say publicly. And again, it's it's nuance, it's weaving, and it's constantly threading a needle. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You were appointed by President Obama as a special assistant to the president, senior director for the development of democracy at the uh, National Security Council. Uh, But you also headed up this presidential study of global development policy. You stood up a policy directive on on global development. Uh, Syria, uh, one of the great humanitarian disasters of all time. Uh, Tell me about that. How do you and how do how do you think it's in some ways still evolving? How do you feel about how we've dealt with it and what happens now with all these refugees who are scattered throughout uh, the Middle East, Europe, not here because we're rarely, we're taking few refugees these days? Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. And my, my directed, directorate and area of responsibility, as you point out, was on the development side. We also had all the humanitarian crises and and democracy. And I think it's instructive to go back to look at the beginning of the Arab Spring. Uh, I think on the one hand, many of us, and I think the world thought that this was going to be a huge opening and finally the kind of change that had been needed for long in that region. I think at the same time, it became evident that the dictatorship, the tyranny, the closed systems that exist across that region had been allowed to exist for way too long. Because once things started to change, uh, the, the change was massive. It was destructive. These countries were ripped to shreds. And I, I remember very well, before even Syria, debates about Egypt. And what do you do about Egypt when all of those people are in the square? And do you say to Mubarak publicly and privately, it is time for you to go or not? I think that was a pretty easy choice. But again, in that case, as in others, it's not like that then there's a door number three when it's, well, that's very easy. Mubarak goes, Egypt will now flourish. Right. Well, this goes to to the thing we were talking about before, which is the tension between democracy and stability. And that played out in a big way in, in Egypt. It played out in a big way, and it's obviously played out in a big way in Syria, uh, where the lengths to which the regime was and is prepared to go uh, 
are endless, where you've got interest from across the region in it, and therefore a number of players, and where I think a burgeoning people's movement that had real momentum, uh, and I think many people hoped could really take off and change that country for the better, uh, was utterly crushed. And then you have a vacuum and you've got all sorts of terrorist groups popping up in the middle of it. Again, I think it's probably one of the hardest foreign policy challenges uh, that the Obama administration handled. My job was the humanitarian side, and I will tell you, it's one of the most complex, difficult, horrible humanitarian crises we've ever seen. What have been the implications of that as you follow it over time? I mean, obviously, so many people have died. So many people have uh, are dispossessed. A flood of refugees into Europe, greatly controversial as political ramifications. But there are still millions, I assume, people who are left in the lurch here. What becomes of them? Well, within Syria, there are millions of people who are affected and who are internally displaced. So I think they are, you know, if you look at the most disenfranchised people on the planet, it's refugees and, and what are called IDPs, internally displaced people. Uh, I think they face no end of hardship. Uh, I think that regime doesn't yet look to be going anywhere. Uh, and it's aided in its survival by a lot of external players. I wish I could say that I was hopeful that there would be real change in Syria in the short term. I'm afraid that's not the case. Uh, so I think it's going to be probably harder for some time before it gets better. I, I do think that we are not engaged. The U.S. government is not really engaged at this point. And I think that's a mistake. It's hard. It's really hard. You will remember how many times Barack Obama said, yeah, well, hard stuff is hard. But you can't win if you don't try. You can't help if you don't try. And you didn't always succeed. So I think it's unfortunate that we don't appear to be paying that much attention to what's going on in Syria. Why should we care? Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is, why should Americans care? Because this is the fundamental debate. I mean, you, as I said earlier, you hear the president say, people have to take care of their own problems. We have to worry about our own problems. So make the counterargument. I'd say there are three reasons that we should care. I think the first is that our values and our embrace of what I still believe are universal values uh, matter. And it's not that we don't get anything in return for that. I can't tell you the number of places I've been around the world where people knew and know that the United States was the first and the fastest to show up in a crisis, where there was an earthquake or a conflict or a famine, that the United States stood with them. And I think values really, really matter. And I think the projection of universal values matters. Like second, we've got an economic interest. It's a question of, of absolutely enlightened self-interest. The United States needs and wants markets for its economy to thrive and grow. And it's important that we have relationships with and invest in the creation of those markets. The third reason, David, has to do with national security. As you said at the top of our discussion, although globalism or the fact that we are interconnected is often rejected, it's fact. And we are affected by things that happen outside our borders, uh, often in negative ways. We've seen that with terrorism. 
we've seen that when we do not have the global architecture that we need, that we can play such a role in building that you have a global pandemic. We've got something called a global economy. So it's in our security interest to be engaged. Yeah, it's also true that uh, when the U.S. doesn't show up, if someone else does, they have a strategic advantage. The Chinese have recognized that and are increasingly trying to play that role. And that will have implications in future struggles that I think have gone unrecognized, at least by the administration. But it is a, I will say, as someone, as a political person, there is a compelling sound to the argument of let let them worry about themselves. Let's worry about ourselves. And, you know, I think there are a fair number of Americans who would nod their heads at that. And it's going to take some work to make the other argument. You, you, uh, you served at the end of the administration as head of USAID. And then you joined the, the one campaign that Bono started. Talk to me about that decision. Talk to me about what one has done and is up to now. The mission has been to fight extreme poverty, to fight preventable diseases. Tell me about progress that's been made and challenges on the horizon here. Well, I've known Bono for a long time. He's the one that came up with the crazy idea that I should uh, assume the position I'm in Today, I'm glad I did. But the, the reason I made that decision is having been in government twice, uh, I had always found one to be an extremely effective advocacy organization uh, because it, it combines a sort of external campaign uh, with all of the creative content, with all sorts of influencers, with all of the public mobilization that is necessary, with a really smart inside game, understanding how the budget works, understanding how decisions are made all over the world. And I I think it's been, you know, in an interesting way, the last few years have been challenging because development hasn't been a top priority for leaders in the way we've seen it in the past. We've had some who've been huge champions, President Macron, France, Angela Merkel, but we've had some victories. We just, in the fall, uh, saw the mobilization of a new round of funding in the fight against HIV and AIDS at a time when people think that's, isn't that something we've already taken care of and it's not, especially in Africa. But it's, you know, that's, again, that's a virus that we're almost caught up with it and we can actually outrun it. So it was great to see that we were able, working with others, to mobilize the resources there. Right now, we've just had a small, it's an important victory, but I would say small, on debt relief for the world's poorest countries, which the G20 just agreed to in its recent meeting in the face of the pandemic. It's important. It's not going to be enough to fill the gap and the need for liquidity in the markets in a lot of countries. But it's that kind of campaigning, whether it's for HIV and AIDS, for vaccines, for education around gender that one does constantly around the world. We've got nine offices, North America, Europe, and across Africa. And it's it's going really well. And actually, I think people really do care and they want to do something. And if you can say, here's what you can do, we often find that they're fully prepared to stand up and get involved. You've talked about the fact that over the last three decades, a a billion people on this planet have escaped extreme poverty in part because of efforts like these. But there's still a billion more who are harder to reach and harder to help. Talk about that. You know, a lot of it, David, is what this pandemic has unmasked. I think it's something that many of us 
have seen, but hasn't been as starkly uh, available in the eyes of way too many people, which is that we've got this huge divide and that there are hundreds of millions of people living in extreme poverty. In my view, it's, it's unacceptable. It's just not right. We've got a saying at one that, that where you're born shouldn't determine how and indeed if you live and that nobody is equal until all of us are equal. I actually believe that. I believe both of those things. And so we will keep the pressure on. And part of it is to that donor countries continue to maintain robust development budgets and support effective development programs around the world. We're also campaigning in Africa. We've got an amazing team in Nigeria, for example, that has campaigned there uh, to urge the Nigerian government successfully to spend more money on health there. So our aim is to mobilize the resources from donors uh, but also from governments in these countries uh, to bring about the kind of change we need to see if we're actually going to see a world that works for everybody, not just some of us. Let me ask you about this question of, of resources. Yeah. Um, we're all trying to figure out what the world looks like after this. Mm-hmm. But one thing's clear, a lot of money is being spent right now by the U.S. and other countries to sustain their people through the crisis. Right. It's going to create additional significant debt. A lot of people have, people who would normally be donors, individual donors, corporate donors, uh, have taken a huge hit. And I'm wondering how much time you're spending worrying about thinking about whether available resources will shrink as a result of this. And in fact, could we take a step backward? Because even though the problems have been highlighted by the virus, the resources that have been taken in order to fight it and the wealth that has been lost as a result of it may make it harder to raise the money that is needed. I think there's a danger of that. And it's very easy in the wake of a crisis when people are exhausted and relieved uh, to sort of forget and move on to the next thing. And I think in this pandemic, we have the opportunity, but also the obligation to hit the pause button, ask ourselves, how much have we spent on this pandemic versus how much will it cost to ensure that we don't go through this Again, and the, the cost effectiveness of doing the prevention and preparation after the fact, both in the global health space, but also in terms of development more broadly, there's no comparison in the numbers. It's a question of, I think, whether or not we will have the collective wisdom to think beyond just the short term and the immediate and understand that we've got, as I say, an opportunity, but I think an obligation to invest in the future we want to live in. Or just to kind of revert to normal and wait till this hits us again. So I think part of what we need to do is put that choice before people and help people understand it with tangible facts and numbers and because it's abstract, I think, otherwise. Yeah, it is. And it's hard when people are currently suffering the impact and very much focused on their own survival and their own futures. But As they should be. As they should be. I mean, I want to be very clear on something. Our, our expectation as the one campaign is not that people in the United States who have lost their jobs, who 
are worried about family members who may see their small businesses go under, that they should suddenly drop everything they're doing and think about people all over the world. It's that all of us globally, those of us like you and I, decision makers and governments who are in a much better position uh, should be the ones to think about whether it's at home or abroad, saying that we're going to make an investment both in the urgency of now, but also in the long term. Because again, the, the notion of doing this again, it's something the world can't afford to even contemplate. Well, here's what I know, my friend, is that when these debates are happening, you're going to be right there in everybody's face making the case as you always have. So it's a real pleasure to see you and to chat with you and to learn more about you than I knew when we saw each other on a daily basis back in the day. Uh, And it's an impressive story. So, Gail Smith, thank you. Well, thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.